Hello, listeners. Welcome to The Unconventional Path, entrepreneurship and innovation stories and ideas. Hello, I'm Bala Musitz. And I'm Mike Wasserman. Today, we're excited to be joined by Mike Begg. Mike is co-founder of AMZ Advisors. AMZ Advisors focuses on helping entrepreneurs maximize their e-commerce effectiveness and efficiency. He also helps entrepreneurs with setting up nearshoring operations in a place like Mexico, and he is actively involved in a variety of consumer goods startups. So I found it to be a great conversation and uh, certainly learned a lot from my discussions with him. Bela, I, I agreed. I think m the more we can learn about e-commerce and channels like Amazon, the better, because so many entrepreneurs are increasingly reliant on these channels to, to build their business and to get their products into the hands of consumers. So let's jump right to the interview. Hello, listeners. Today's guest is Michael Begg. Uh, he is an entrepreneur and a really smart guy who has done a whole bunch of different things that I think uh, you'll all find interesting. So uh, welcome to the show, Mike. Bella, thank you for having me here. I appreciate the uh, opportunity to speak with your audience and give them some insight into what I do and how I help other companies and entrepreneurs. Yeah, absolutely. So let me ask you a question. If you are at a social event and you get introduced to someone and then they ask you, nice to meet you, Mike, what do you do? How do you answer that question? I think there's a few different ways uh, we could take that. But uh, I think one of the things I would say is that I try to help other people achieve their goals. Um, you know, I've always focused through all of my businesses on, you know, providing a service to other people, helping them. So I think that's the way I would kind of phrase my answer. Yeah. And so let's peel that back a little bit. Uh, what what type of advice do you give? What type of businesses? What type of folks, et cetera? So uh, I actually have a varying background. Uh, I originally graduated from school and I worked in consulting for Deloitte. I then moved into real estate development for Sears. Uh, so I have experience on the retail side. Uh, then I moved into e-commerce, building my own e-commerce brands. That was my first uh, you know, venture into entrepreneurialism. And uh, yeah, now I've been uh, building an agency for the past six and a half years that helps other brands and manufacturers sell more products online. And I have another project where I am helping uh, companies to nearshore their workforce or find employees in, uh, in Mexico. So having a, a lower cost uh, hiring option for, for their businesses. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, you said you started a couple of, of e-commerce businesses. Uh, what were they? So the first one was an art supply brand that was called Crown Art. Uh, we did that for about a year and then ended up selling it. Um, and then the other brand was called Coast to Coast, uh, which was an outdoor brand, outdoor product, uh, outdoor goods product brand, uh, like sporting goods, things like that. Um, and we did that for about a year as well. Uh, we, you know, we exited the company. It wasn't as successful as the crown art one, but, uh, that was the two brands that I started with. I have a few more brands that I'm working on now. Uh, one is called green drop, which is, uh, for compression products for athletes. Um, another is called Casa Cantucci, which is for baked goods uh, online and a third, we don't have a name for yet. It is a women's dress brand that I'm helping my girlfriend build. So that is a wide diversity of product <laughs> types and industries. Yes. Right. So 
how do you how do you decide which one of those to pursue? How, how do how do you come up with the hey, this is a good one. We're going to take a shot at this. Yeah, I, it's a lot of it's just been personal interest and opportunities that come along. I mean, I've been in the e-commerce space long enough that a lot of these are partnerships that people bring to me or, you know, partnership opportunities that we find with other people. For example, Green Drop is a partnership with uh, a few people that we had worked with in the past. Um, we're using a lot of MMA, mixed martial arts uh, influencers to really launch the brand. Um, the Casa Cantucci, that is with a partner who had experience on the food manufacturing side. That's an area I didn't know. So that was another, you know, strategic partnership. And the dresses are just something that my girlfriend was interested in. So uh, that's kind of how that one started. But yeah, yeah, I mean, it's really just the opportunities that come along. Oh, excellent. So, you know, a lot of people think, okay, I'm going to start a business and I'm going to sell my stuff on the web. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and now I have an e-commerce business, or at least they think they have an e-commerce business. <laughs> what are some of the things that people underestimate or get wrong what, from your perspective? It's not just as simple as, uh, you know, throwing it up and the sales are going to come in. I mean, I know that that Kevin Costner movie is, you know, build it and they will come. Uh, It's not the same in e-commerce. You need to you need to do a lot more to really start building a brand there to really have consistent sales. Uh, One of the things that we recommend to all of our clients is focusing initially on the platform side, such as Amazon, Walmart, uh, Etsy, you know, whatever platforms your products fit. And then really trying to build out your own website presence. It's just a lower barrier to entry into e-commerce. And it's, I mean, it, there's still work, but it's less work than building all the marketing channels out for your own website. Yeah, yeah. Now, certainly e-commerce has has made certain things easier for entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, in many ways, I think about it. I mean, sometimes I do a search on Amazon for something that I, I'm hoping there'll be maybe one supplier, and I find like 50 <laughs> suppliers. Yes. And I go, oh my gosh, you know, now these 50 folks are competing for my business. And it's a really sort of esoteric, small marketplace type of thing I'm looking for. You know, I'm not looking to buy yeah. a pair of jeans, right? This is like some some weirdo thing. And so how, how do people sort of sort through that? What advice can you give people on, on that space? I mean, I think e-commerce has allowed anyone in any field, any background to really start building their brands and to reach a much wider audience than they ever would have been able to before. And I think that's the great benefit. I mean, it opens up a lot of opportunities to entrepreneurs, but not just entrepreneurs in the U.S. It all opens up a lot of entrepreneurs overseas as well. And a lot of these people that are selling on Amazon – they may be the manufacturers in Asia or you know Latin America or other places that are now selling their products direct to customer, cutting out the middleman, and possibly even making more money on the on the uh, on the margin. Um, so I mean, it, it, anyone can really be there. I mean, it's the great thing about it, in my opinion. Uh, you get a lot of variety. You can the best products will rise to the top, whereas in the past maybe you would go to a store and they maybe have one option. And you don't really have any choice if you don't like the the option. So uh, variety, I think, is great from the customer perspective. And then just the opportunity for multiple sellers to be able to compete, uh, I think, is also great. Yeah. Yeah. So in many ways, this this e-commerce platforms that exist have really lowered the barriers for people to to get into business. Right. It's made it much easier. I can use Amazon to sell my products so I don't have to worry about distribution. So a whole bunch of stuff that if I was 30 years ago and I had a set up. <laughs> 
you know, distribution channels, sales reps, and all this kind of stuff. Gosh, it's a it's intimidating. But now it's the good news is it's lowered the barrier. The bad news it's it's lowered the barrier for everyone. Exactly. Uh, definitely more competition. But you know, being if you're able to learn quickly, if you're able to figure out uh, obviously what your strengths, what your weaknesses are, and then adjust to those in the digital space, there's a lot more opportunity to really start growing. Uh, you know, we have company, we have clients that have been one person operations that have started selling on Amazon at maybe 10, excuse me, $10,000 a month. And now they're doing almost $350,000 a month. So, and this was a one person operation. Now they have, I think four or five employees, but I mean that watching that growth over a two, three year period is pretty impressive. Yeah. Yeah. So what are the things that a person, let's take that example. What, what did that person do to grow from you know, 10,000 to 300,000 a month. I think this is a good example of what I just said is playing to your strengths. Uh, this business owner's background and her strengths were in uh, supply chain and inventory management. She had an MBA from uh, Keegan in North Carolina, and that was, is what she specialized in. Her family also was Chinese, so they had a lot of connections back in China of manufacturers, you know, that is her advantage. She didn't have the, the experience in digital marketing, which is why she employed an agency like like us to do it for her. Um, she's very good on the product discovery side, the new the new uh, or the product sourcing side. We help her a lot with the product ideas of what we're seeing selling on the marketplace. So, in her instance, you know, she focused on let me get the inventory management down perfectly. Let me get my supply chain down perfectly. And it gave us the opportunity to really push the sales, really push the marketing and help it grow a lot quicker. One of the challenges uh, that I've seen, you know, in, in a previous life, I was in the venture capital business mm-hmm. and uh, we funded companies. And oftentimes those companies uh, made tangible products. Uh, they, yep. they, had, they had to manufacture stuff. So they often designed it and they looked to other people to actually make the product, actually manufacture the product. Mm-hmm. And everybody always, a uh, vast majority of folks would want to rush to China to, to get product made because it was per unit price was cheaper. But oftentimes they stumbled over the, well, you got to order 20,000 of them. <laughs> and, you know, it's a six month lead time unless you air freight them. And then all of a sudden, if you have to air freight things, it's not a cost competitive thing anymore. Yep. And since you don't have credit, they're going to want uh, at a minimum COD. It's, a, it's certainly not going to give you terms. Oftentimes, mm-hmm. they're going to want 50% up front. So how do you work with folks in sort of addressing those types of issues? Sure. So uh, again, our specialty is on the digital marketing side. We don't get too involved in it. In my personal experience, though, the ways that I've handled uh, dealing with manufacturers in China and particularly is using sea freight. Uh, it's definitely a lot cheaper, although right now, because there's so much demand in the e-commerce space and the product space in general, shipping rates have gone up significantly. So that's one challenge. Another way, and this is how I'm kind of addressing it in my new brands, is actually moving manufacturing a lot closer to home. So uh, the the food product, Casa Cantucci, uh, the dresses and the compression uh, brand, all of that is being manufactured in Mexico now and uh, Tijuana and Monterey. So very close to the U.S. border, uh, very easy to get it across, no sea freight. Um, the cost of manufacturing may be slightly higher than it would cost you in China. But when it comes to the actual shipping, the the lead time you need to wait to actually get the product into your warehouse, it's 
much quicker. So you can actually end up probably saving some money on the ship yeah. on the shipping. Yeah. We we saw a couple of great successes where where people would manufacture low volume parts uh, in in their town or in the town yeah. next door because you know the product's going to change. You, yeah. You know you the first version is not the right version. <laughs> you know you got exactly. things you're going to want to change. So the ability to sort of drive to your manufacturer and talk to them and get their ideas and figure out how you can tweak things, oftentimes to reduce cost and improve the product, are really important to do. And if that's if that's far away, you got to hop on an airplane. Exactly. Ah, it's a pain, right? So this notion of doing these close things close, at least in the beginning, and then once you have the product sort of nailed, then you can go and go out to bid, right, and get some some manufacturers to, to, to build things out. Exactly. And I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of other things to consider when you're doing that. I mean, product design is fantastic. If you can do it local, if you're going to do it in the U S and it's something that you think is patentable, make sure that you get that patent in the U S but also you need to make sure you're getting the patent wherever you're going to go manufacture. So, uh, one way that we do this is, you know, we have a contract manufacturing company in Mexico that we work with. Uh, so they help us with that. And in the past, we've had we've heard horror stories of clients that have not dealt with their product development in the U.S. They've dealt with it in China, and then the Chinese company goes and patents it in China, and well, now you have no recourse. Pretty much, yeah. they've taken it. They can sell your own product, and uh, that's I mean I, that's a nightmare. You really can't do much much to get around that. Yeah. Well, one one of the pearls of uh, uh, international business is. Uh, not every country's intellectual property laws are the same. Yep. So there's variation in those intellectual property laws. And and the way they're done in, in the United States, uh, they're done differently in other countries. So you have to be aware of that. Yes, exactly. Uh, I, trademarks, patents are important to have in the countries you're going to be manufacturing in as well as your home country. Yeah. Yeah. So I, in reading your... Uh, background here one of the things that, that was in there was this this concept called near shoring what is yes that? uh well near shoring is uh essentially the idea of hiring close to home uh while not being in the u.s uh one of the common terms that has come up over uh, i don't know the past 20 30 years was offshoring or outsourcing and that typically involves moving jobs to asia um that's i mean that's great the cost is definitely low by by doing that, but there's a lot of disadvantages as well. If you're building your own business and your clients are primarily in the U S or Canada or North America or Europe, the time zone differences are going to be a big obstacle for your company. Uh, by nearshoring, we help companies to actually establish operations in Mexico. And actually I'm coming from Mexico right now on this call. This is where I live. Um, and yeah, it allows them to save a lot on the cost of labor, scale much more quickly their workforce. Uh, myself and my company, we have 18 employees here in Mexico. Uh, and I mean, it's it's just awesome. The, the, the quality is great. The, the English language skills are phenomenal, which is another challenge we run into a lot of times in Asia. So there's a lot of benefits to it. And the other great thing is that if you ever need to go visit them, um, you know, from South Florida to where I am, I think it's th- a three hour flight. So it's pretty easy to get here with it just being so close to home. Yeah, yeah, excellent. Uh, so if I am a entrepreneur and I have a small business, or let me ask it a different way, what's the sweet spot? What's your sweet spot for, <laughs> for clients, right? So if you, had a, I, if you had to 
characterize the ideal client for you guys, for someone to call you up and say, hey, hey, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Hey, Mike, give me give me a hand here. Characterize mm-hmm. the, the, the right space and size, et cetera. <laughs> well, I think uh, if we're sticking to the nearshoring side, um, the, the, the right client is just someone that has people that are either back office or jobs that, um, you know, maybe they just can't afford in the U.S., one good example of the way that I use this in my digital marketing agency is graphic design. Uh, a full-time graphic designer in the U.S. costs about $50,000 a year, whereas a full-time graphic designer here costs about twenty to 25000 So I'm getting pretty much two to one on my dollars versus, compared to what I would be paying in the U.S. Uh, many of the positions that we filled or that we're capable of filling are uh, customer service, sales, relationship management, marketing, uh, accounting, a lot of back office roles. Um, you know, it's just, it, it's so easy to save money and, you know, we help get it set up with the office space, the equipment, all the HR, all of the recruiting. Um, you know, there's no tax or legal liabilities in Mexico or the U S there's just a lot of advantages to it. And it's a good way to, to really scale quickly if you have a good service or a good product that you're trying to bring to market and just need the people to help you do it. Yeah, yeah. And if, uh, if I look back on uh, building a brand, because I think one of the things you said you help people do is build a brand. Yes. Here again, what are, what are sort of the key mistakes that people make when it comes to their brand? <laughs> That is a very difficult question. I think brand building kind of takes two different approaches, whether you have a service or whether you have a physical product. Uh, on a physical product side, the the main thing to, to building a brand is just having good feedback, having good social proof. And that comes a lot from having good customer service, uh, good communications with the people that are buying your products. All of that, especially in the digital age where your products can be found anywhere, is extremely important because if you have you know, reviews saying your product is poor quality or it doesn't work the way it's described or whatever it be, may be, that's going to discourage future customers from purchasing your product. So I think uh, product quality on the physical side is one thing that a lot of people don't pay enough attention to, and that, that can lead to a lot of downfalls with brand building. And on the service side, again, I said this is a little different. It's really about building uh, authority within your space and showing your knowledge and showing uh, your ability to get things done. And that's really more of a, a content uh, marketing perspective, like how much content can you put out, maximizing the volume of content, the places you're putting it, wherever your, your audience may be uh, for whatever service you're offering. And I think not doing that on the service side is, is where a lot of uh, businesses fall short in building their brands. Yeah. Yeah. You know, as you were talking about those reviews, I was reflecting back on the online shopping I do and almost always read reviews. And, you know, if you have, if you have one bad review, you say, well, no. you sort of read between the lines. You try to understand it a little bit and you might discount it. But if you have two or three or four and they're well-written and they're thoughtful, I'm not going to buy yeah. that product. It's am- and, and there could be 200 positive reviews. It's yeah. amazing sort of the disproportional amount of influence a negative review has compared to a positive review. It's true, especially when there's so much variety of options out there. I mean, the best product, this is why I say product quality quality is so important if you're busy building a physical product is because there are so many options when anyone goes to Amazon, when anyone goes to Walmart or Target or wherever it is online, 
wherever they're purchasing their product from, they can see the reviews for everything, you know, which ones has the best, which ones has the worst. It's very easy to do comparisons and learn from other people's experience. So social proof in the digital space is extremely important for e-commerce. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, here's another question that I frequently get from entrepreneurs. Uh, Uh, you know, they're, they're about ready to graduate from high school or college or, you know, graduate from some somewhere and, and they're contemplating or debating, should I go work in corporate America for a number of years or should I start my entrepreneurial endeavor right now? Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? I think it really depends. Um, you know, my, just from my experience, my background, I did go into corporate America. I didn't really have the desire to be an entrepreneur. I didn't have those tendencies. I, I knew in the future at some point I wanted to do something, but I had no idea what that was. And that's kind of why I went the corporate route. I think working in consulting and real estate development gave me a lot of background in managing larger products, which obviously helped me build confidence and the ability to think that I would be successful or think more critically in the problems that I had. Um, but I think if you have an idea, you're confident in yourself, you have the support system around you. Um, there's no reason to not try to start it right out of school. I mean, if I had learned what I had in the e-commerce space and how to sell on Amazon prior to going to school, I, I may not have even gone to school just because of the opportunity. Uh, you know, those four years I could have grown a business so much quicker if I understood how e-commerce works. Right. So, I think it really depends on your own self-confidence a lot, uh, how much you believe in whatever the product product is, how comfortable you are in uh, explaining your problem. Because, you know, if you're a service, if you're doing something on the service side and you're young, your age is going to be detrimental. <laughs> it's going to be a problem. People are going to be like, oh, you're so young. You don't, you don't know what you're talking about. That is a challenge. The physical product space, it doesn't matter as much. Uh, it's really just about having the right quality, having the right manufacturer. Um, so, yeah, that's. I think uh, if you have the confidence, you have the the, the idea to go uh, a market to start scaling in. I think you can do it right out of school. Yeah. So if you if you were looking into your crystal ball and looking out into the future, <laughs> you know, two, three, four years, the e-commerce space, sort of the way the whole world and and, and commerce is changing, uh, mm-hmm. what advice would you give to uh, you know small business owners? I would say that. Well, to talk about uh, commerce in general and not just e-commerce, I think if you are primarily relying on a brick and mortar location for your sales, I think that's a big mistake. Uh, I think you need to be online. You need to be found. Um, The way that I always phrase this conversation when I'm talking to clients that don't have experience in the e-commerce space or just getting into it for the first time is that platforms like Amazon, like Walmart, are the largest brand discovery tools out there. So if you're building a brand, you're trying to build something big, you need to be on those platforms. I think 69% of all online product searches start on the Amazon platform. That's the latest numbers I've seen. Maybe it might even be more now after 2020. But the point is not being there means that your potential customers aren't finding you. The longer you wait to get on there, the more competition is going to arrive as well. I mean, like I said, the great thing about e-commerce is it allows you to cut out the middleman if you are a manufacturer. Now you don't need distributors. You can sell direct to customer through e-commerce platforms. So I think with that being said, the the, the main advice I would have is just get started now. You know, e-commerce isn't going anywhere. The platforms are going to change. The way the products are going to reach the end customers will change. The way they're going to order is going to change. 
but having your products online is going to be a necessity for any business to start to continue to be successful in the future. Yeah. Yeah. And so you're a big advocate of sort of, of, of using Amazon and Walmart and Etsy and those places to sort of get launched. It, it depends on your business and where you are. If you have a good list, uh, if you have a good email list, a good uh, list of customers that you can reach out to online, you may be able to start getting success through your website uh, initially. But again, if you're if you're young, if you're a newer company, or if you're only known regionally, maybe being online is great because you can reach so many more customers yeah. uh, on on the Amazon platform than you would anywhere else. Yeah, and and your point is uh, those things are not mutually exclusive. It's not one or the other. Yeah. You can you can have your own company's online uh, uh, web presence, and you can have Amazon or Walmart or Etsy. Exactly, I think it's extremely important to have both. Uh, when we think about it from profitability wise, you're going to be way more profitable on your own website, but you're going to get way, way more brand discovery and uh, social proof through Amazon. And if everyone's going to Amazon to search for products, see the product reviews, you have to be there with them. Yeah. So is one of the things that your business uh, does uh, is help people sort of sort through the Amazon, Walmart, Etsy landscape? Yes. We help them navigate the e-commerce space to figure out what is the best solution for their for their company, for their brand to grow online? Usually Amazon figures in there in some piece, so that's like the main part that we focus on. But yeah, we help them uh, you know get some, if they have demographic information, we can make better choices on which platforms they need to be on. Uh, for example, uh, if your audience is primarily women, uh, Pinterest is extremely important to be on. Etsy is extremely important to be on. Uh, and that may change platform to platform and product to product. So, yeah, we really dive into all of our clients, uh, companies, try to understand them better, try to understand their, their customer better, and then make recommendations from that uh, point. Yeah, excellent. So uh, it just dawned on me that we haven't talked about the name of your business and how to get a hold of you. So uh, share <laughs> yeah. that information with us. Sure. Uh, the name of my marketing agency is amzcourses.com. Uh, excuse me, amzadvisors.com, amzcourses.com is another project I have if you want to teach yourself how to sell on the Amazon platform. Um, so you can reach me at either of those. My primary email, though, is mike at amzadvisors.com. So that's the best place to ask me questions directly or if you're looking for help with e-commerce, with you know nearshoring your workforce, whatever it may be, feel free to email me at mike at amzadvisors.com and I'll be glad to try to help you in any way I can. No, that's great. And I'll make sure all of that contact information is in the show notes. Hey, Mike, you've been a great guest. Uh, I've really enjoyed the conversation. And uh, I hope uh, great success for all your companies and clients. Thank you very much, Bella. I appreciate it. It's been great being on the show. And I, you know, I really enjoy giving my insight and my experience. And I just hope that it helps your audience. I'm sure it will. Thanks again. Thank you. Bela, another really interesting interview. Uh, Mike's clearly targeting an important niche here and that, you know, lots of entrepreneurs are trying to build brands in the e-commerce space and use e-commerce as the channel to deliver their products and services to their customers. How much help does this segment really need? That's a good question, Mike. Uh, clearly, we know it's a very important segment these days. Uh, in many ways, you almost have to be on Amazon or Etsy or Walmart. There are often times when I hear a pro about a product, the first place I go to look for it is on Amazon and to see if it's available uh, and see if Amazon sells it. In many ways, if you're on Amazon, you sort of have a certain amount of credibility or if you're on the Walmart channel, right? You, you've, been, you've been sort of vetted by them and you have some credibility. 
So I think this notion of understanding e-commerce is really, really important. And I think, as we discussed with, with Mike, this, this notion of Amazon and Etsy or Walmart, they're really, really important. And you almost have to be there as a startup business or as an entrepreneur. But also the importance of starting your own direct e-commerce channel is really, really important. Uh, because you want to start developing your own online presence and your own brand, and you don't want to be totally tied in with and dependent upon Amazon. So, because I think at some point in time, you want to, you know, you never, you always, you always hear in business, you never want to have uh, one customer represent too large a portion of your business, because if that customer, something happens to them, you could be in big trouble. And if your sole distribution channel is Amazon or Walmart, and they, for some reason, change a policy or a practice or something like that, you can find yourself without a distribution channel. So it's always important to, to have multiple ones and also to have your own and build your brand. What did you think, Mike? Yeah, it's also about controlling the data, too, because when you go through a channel, the channel, whether it's Amazon or Etsy, they own the customer data. You don't get it in most cases, and they own the customer in a lot of ways. You might have brand name recognition to an extent, but the repeat business has to go through Amazon. You don't have any control over customer complaints or problems so much because it goes to Amazon rather than directly to you in many cases. So there really are risks. But, you know, you're right. You said it that, you know, Amazon has turned into nearly as important as Googling something, right? Because it now instead of going to Google or a search engine first, first to find a product, people are going directly to Amazon. So its size and its scope have gotten so great that it's hard to avoid their power. But yeah, you don't want to throw your whole lot in with an Amazon or even an Etsy. I think Etsy's a lot better. They have more consumer prote protections. But, you know, again, there's lots of stories where Amazon creates a knockoff under the Amazon Basics label, right? So you, you might be a hot seller and then they wind up selling one at a lower price. And, you know, when you search for the product, theirs comes up first. They control the search engine results. So there is a ton of risk involved. And maybe that's where a guy like Mike Begg can be really helpful to kind of navigate these waters between finding the right approach to take with an Amazon or a Walmart or an Etsy or any other retail channel that you're using Versus protecting yourself, building your own brand, building your own channel so that eventually, um, you know, you can um, you can control more and more of your customers and, and cycle them more and more through your own channel. Um, not to mention, in, and Mike mentioned this in the interview, the margins are much higher because now you're not giving your percentage over to the platform owner. Yeah. So I think it makes a ton of sense Bailetta, yeah. to, to look at these at not just one distribution channel from an e-commerce standpoint, but trying to be on multiple channels. Yeah, you know, Mike. Yeah, I I, I want to reemphasize your point about owning the customer, because I want to put my VC hat on right now, and my VC hat from the point of view of trying to sell the businesses that we've invested money in. One of the big attractiveness to an acquirer of your business is your customers and your customer list and your relationship with those customers, and if you don't own them, if you don't. If, if all you have is a name and a mail address, right, a shipping address, that's really not a customer list. Uh, that's a mailing list. And, and this notion of customers and having a relationship with your customers 
and and because that's a huge asset for a business. It's a huge asset, not just from the point of daily operations, but it's a huge asset when if and when you ever go to sell that business. So really, really important. Yeah, it's Amazon's biggest asset. It's much more valuable than their servers or their brand name or right anything else that they do or their airplanes or their trucks now that they have, right? Any of those things is their their customer base. That's what allows that to be such a hugely valued company on the stock market. They're not all that profitable, right? And they don't actually have a lot of assets, right, compared to other big industrial companies. But the asset they have is that customer base. So, yeah, I think uh, I think you really explained that clearly, Bela. Let's let's switch topics a little bit because there was this other separate conversation with Mike that you had about nearshoring, right? The opposite of out, outsourcing or offshoring, right, is when you uh, off, off, offshoring is when you go and, and move your production to a foreign country. A lot of times that was in Asia, right? And now Mike's saying, hey, bring it back. If you're in the U.S., look at Mex- something like Mexico, right, where the labor costs are lower, the distribution costs are lower, or uh, the, the travel distances are lower, so the logistics costs are lower. All kinds of interesting things there. Is this an is an attractive of an option to U.S. entrepreneurs as Mike makes it sound? I think it is. I think it is. And and I'm a, I'm a huge advocate for and a believer in this notion of when you're starting out, particularly if you're making a physical product uh, or even if it's a software product, uh, find vendors and suppliers that are physically close to you because in the beginning you have lots of changes, lots of modifications, and and the ability to hop in your car and drive someplace in 45 minutes to an hour to sit down across the table with the company that's manufacturing your product, your pro, I'll call it your prototype product, even though you might not call it a prototype, uh, unless you uh, until you've made a whole pile of them, it's a prototype because it's going to change, is really, really valuable. Being able to sit down and talk about it. And if that person is on the other side of the world and there's a 12-hour time difference, all of a sudden these things take much longer periods of time. And the time cycle, right, the cycle to do an iteration gets stretched way out or you want to iterate on your product, the, 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 the lag is huge. Whereas this notion of if the company is close by you, physically close by, you can hop in the car, you can pick up the phone because you're in the same time zones, et cetera, is really, really important. Once the product is more well-defined and you know it's not going to change, maybe except once a year or twice a year or something, then moving it to places where you can get it for a significantly lower cost is important. But as Mike and I discussed in the podcast, uh, the, the, uh, uh, the notion I've seen lots of companies think they're saving money by going to China or other uh, low, low labor cost locations to get their early products built. And it ends up costing them more than if they would have stayed locally. And then this notion of, you know, we have good relationships with Mexico. We have good trade agreements. Uh, so look to places where we have good trade agreements and, 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 you know, they're used to working with us companies. Language is good. Time zones are congregate with us. So, I think it makes a lot of sense. And cultural differences are important too. You know, look at yourself. If you're a business owner, how much intercultural capabilities do you have, right? Do you know 
um, you know, if you're going to Vietnam or Malaysia, do you know about that culture and know how to negotiate? And is the person you're working with there, how comfortable are they, you know, with U.S. business practices? There's a big difference in how people around the world conduct business. And, you know, your success is going to be dependent on either your ability to bridge those cultural gaps or for you to choose a partner who can bridge those cultural gaps. And there's still lots of room for problems there. And um, I've got plenty of friends who do different types of manufacturing in different countries. And this is a theme that comes up again and again and again for small companies and big companies, both. So it's really a, an important thing to consider. Um, you know, I, I also think that the idea that, um, that you have to go for the lowest labor cost sometimes is, is, is not true because there's so many other costs besides labor costs that have to be factored in. So you really got to do your math and your homework. And, you know, for example, wages in China have been rising for a long time and there's not such a wage gap with China anymore. And you move to Vietnam or you move to Malaysia or you move to another Asian country and then the logistics issues are, are bad again. In China, they have beautiful, I mean, I haven't been there in several years, but even when I was there, beautiful rail road ports right they've they've invested so much money in infrastructure that you can get goods in and out very quickly uh, from almost you know any part of the um the more densely populated parts of china um but right once you move out out of there now you have logistics issues again and you know mexico the two cities he was talking to are fairly near the border there's good road there and there's there's good infrastructure there um you know so it's easy so you got to really consider lots of factors like that and and don't be enticed necessarily just by low labor costs really do your homework into the total cost of doing business yeah um in, in a foreign country in the you know from a, the german standpoint we have similar challenges so companies have lots of good reasons as you've talked about Bela, to manufacture close to home right here in germany but labor costs are a little higher and especially utility energy costs are higher so country companies look to poland or the czech republic or something like that that's not very far away geographically but the the costs are lower the distances are fine so shipping time shipping costs are not that big of a deal as going from the north america to asia um but it's an interesting discussion uh that that every business owner really has to think about is what are the costs and benefits of manufacturing close to home versus Versus far away. And this Mexico option was an interesting middle ground. What else struck you about your conversation with Mike Bela? So I, th- I think the other, the other issue I, or point I want to bring up is this notion of intellectual property and protecting intellectual property. It's important to understand that not all countries have the same view about intellectual property. They don't have the same laws that we have about intellectual property. And oftentimes you hear horror stories of companies that have gotten their intellectual property ripped off, whether it be software, hardware, uh, you name it, uh, clothing designs, etc. So you have to be very careful here. So that's another thing to sort of do homework about. What are the country's intellectual property laws? And what about the companies that you're dealing with? How, you know, can, how have they treated their customers? Do they have their own manufacturing facilities where they're manufacturing their own products as well as manufacturing products for other people, right? You want to understand all those types of things. And the big challenge for a small company when it comes to intellectual property is that there is no intellectual property police. There's no patent police. You're the one as a small company that has to enforce your patents, your copyrights, your intellectual property. No one else is going to enforce them for you. And what does that mean? That means it's going to cost you a lot of money just to get out of the gate. 
And I often say this to, again, putting my venture hat back on to small companies that go crazy patenting things. And I say, that's great if you can patent things. But my, my view of this, because a, a patent in this country costs you 20,000 bucks, I think is the last time I checked, sort of the going rate to get a patent. Yeah, you can probably get it cheaper. Some places, some might be more expensive, but it's around 20 grand each. So you can, you can do that. And, and if you get a, <clears throat> excuse me, if you get a patent and someone starts violating the patent, what are you going to do? There's no one to call except an attorney. And most attorneys will tell you it's close to a half million bucks. <laughs> you got you got to be prepared to spend a half a million dollars to take someone to court. Because it, particularly if it's a large company, they're going to fight you all the way. Uh, because they know at some point they'll fight you long enough, you'll go out of business. Now, whether that's right or wrong or proper is not the point. The point is there is no... Uh, there is no... Uh, uh, district attorney that's going to prosecute on your behalf when it comes to intellectual property. You have to prosecute it. And 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 it's expensive. So intellectual property is very important. And I'm much more of a believer in trying to keep those trade secrets as long as possible versus patenting them. And running fast, meaning running fast, keeping ahead of your competition, as opposed to spending lots and lots of times building this patent portfolio particularly the one exception to this is the notion of if it's a chemical formulation, right? Those things are easy to tell if someone's violating, but if you make a widget, if I make a, you know, a left-handed tent stretcher and I make it a certain way, it's pretty easy for someone to make it a different way. And I can't do much about it. Uh, but if it's a chemical formula, that those pieces of intellectual property uh, in other words, a recipe uh, that's easy to tell if someone's violating it. Uh, those things can be valuable and worthwhile protecting. I think I went off on a little side note here on intellectual property, but I think it, it's well worth it for for our listeners. Yeah, absolutely interesting, Bela. Thanks. What do you think? Should we wrap it up? Yep, let's do that. Great. Well, listeners, thanks for joining us once again today. We hope you enjoyed this episode, found it interesting and thought-provoking just as we did. If you have questions about what we've discussed, please feel free to give us an email. You can contact us at bela.and.mike at gmail.com. Hey, Mike, as usual, it was great chatting with you on this podcast and putting it together. So until next time, signing off from upstate New York. See you soon. Thanks, Bela. Sounds great. Can't wait to hear our next episode. See you later from Münster, Germany. <laughs>